As a church, we've been going through uh, the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, we've been looking for God's heart. What does it tell us about who God is, how we would relate to him, how we would relate to other people? And so today in Isaiah, I'm going to be looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so if you want to turn there, you can, but you don't need to. I'm not going to pick this thing apart verse by verse. What I'm going to do is tell you a story. Because 10, 11, and 12 is like a zoomed-in story. It's a story within a story. And so I think it, it acts as a mirror for you and I. It uh, kind of refines what Isaiah is trying to say in general. And I, I hope you find it as clarifying as I do. So feel free to turn there if you want to. But we're starting the story in Isaiah where Israel is not in control of their own land. So they are ruled by a group, a neighbor called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are in control of their government, their trade. They're taking advantage of the poor. It's not a good situation. And the reason Israel's in that situation is because previously they had made a vow to God, uh, a covenant. They decided to form an agreement, a relationship. And they broke a, a promise. They broke several promises, actually. They broke that relationship. And so God's leadership was removed from their society in all levels. And as a consequence and form of discipline, the Assyrians came in and started to run the show. So after a while, the Israelites were uh, sad, remorseful, and started praying and seeking their God that he would come and rescue them. So this is where we find Israel in chapter 10. And what God does is rather interesting is uh, not only has he disciplined Israel for their disobedience, but he also judges the Assyrians. The Assyrians were particularly cruel people. And they abused and murdered and took advantage of the Israelites. And even though God allowed the Assyrians to rule their land and their, their politics... He, was, he did not like how cruel they were, and so he judged them, the Assyrians. God may have made a contract, a promise, a vow with the Israelites, but he was going to judge anybody that took advantage of their authority. And so what that tells us is something very interesting, I think, about God and about you and me. First of all, it tells us that God really cares about justice and mercy. Not just for who he likes, but for everybody. God cares about justice and mercy for everybody. And he, he delivers it fairly. Not just people he's made promises to, but to everybody. Secondly, I think that shows that you and I crave justice and mercy all the time. All the time. I, when you watch the news, you see injustice going on around the world. There is a tangible lack of mercy in certain parts of, of the corner on this world, and it's disheartening and it's discouraging. We look in our own systems and structures, and we have a lot to be thankful for in our democracy, but we know that's not perfect. And everyone doesn't receive the justice and mercy they need and deserve. So, for example, I was a juror on a, on a trial where we were deciding whether a man was guilty of second-degree murder or manslaughter. He had killed his wife with a knife. And no one was arguing he didn't do it. Even the defense 
The defense wasn't saying he didn't do it. The defense was saying we should show him mercy, give him a lesser sentence because of the, the reasons why. That he was maybe a little more justified in murdering his wife. And of course, the crown wanted justice the whole way. Second degree murder. Thinking, of course, the victim's family and the severity of the crime. In the end, after eight weeks of evidence and 13 days of deliberation, we were a hung jury. We could not come to a decision. I learned later that a member of the deceased, the wife's family, was in the crowd when we delivered our verdict. She did not get justice that day because we were incapable of delivering it. We're not bad. We didn't fail as jurors. Um, it's the longest running deliberation in BC history. We worked hard, it was painful, and people were crying by the end. But we were unable to come to a unanimous decision on what this gentleman was guilty of. And so there was no justice for the victim and lots of mercy for the accused. That didn't feel very fair. That was a hard day. You see, our system craves for justice and mercy. Our system seeks justice and mercy, but can't always deliver it. And we have a great judicial system. I was really impressed with everybody in it. And justice and mercy we crave personally. You know, I'm a parent of two. I have two under two. So my house is quite noisy. And uh, I deal with justice and mercy every night when my daughter wakes up at 3 a.m. <clears throat> and uh, I hear her on the monitor, and it's like, ah, suck. <laughs> I'm so tired. And in that moment, I'm not feeling a whole lot of mercy for my two-year-old. <laughs> and so um, I actually, honestly, I get quite angry. Because the first thing that comes into my heart and mind is, I'm tired. I'm going to probably get up with you at 5 a.m. You little twerp, you go back to sleep. I'm angry. And uh, in that moment, all I'm thinking about is my justice as a parent. And I have to stop, and I have to, I have to pray. I have to ask God's spirit to come and give me peace because I'm not capable of giving my daughter what she needs in that moment, left up to my own. Now, sometimes that looks like going into a room, picking her up, giving her a bottle, reading her a story, showing her lots of mercy, and then putting her down. Sometimes that looks like going in and, and reassuring her that she's... She's allowed to be sad, she's allowed to be angry, but she needs to go back to sleep and I can't, she needs to show her parents some mercy and go back to sleep. And I let her cry and I've let her cry for an hour and a half. <clears throat> because my daughter needs to show me mercy as much as I need to show her. But the difference is in that moment is when I stop and I pray, I'm not thinking about the justice I feel I deserve. I'm not using my authority as a parent to get what I want, I'm trying to serve my kid. And sometimes that looks like disciplining her, and sometimes that looks like loving her lavishly. But in any given moment, oh, I struggle to know whether she deserves justice or mercy, especially at 3 a.m. when I'm super tired. So I just think justice and mercy weaves through every part of our life. We crave it. God really cares about it, and it has to be equitable. 
It has to be. And so my question to you is, what's your source? What's your source of justice and mercy? Question one. When you've been uh, done wrong, when someone's hurt you, when you've hurt other people, when someone takes advantage of your career at work, when your kids say something nasty to your face, whose justice and mercy are you thinking about in that moment? Where do you go to do what is right? God loves it. He cares about it deeply, and we crave it, and we need it. But we need a source. So what's your source? So that's, that's chapter 10. Chapter 11, God looks at Israel's situation, and he says to them, you need a good leader. You need a good leader. So I'm going to provide you one that can give you all the justice and the mercy that you need. And so Israel goes through a long line of leaders that are terrible until they hit one named David. Now, David took a very humble, servant-hearted path to leadership. And when he got there, he cared about right and wrong. He, took after the, he looked after the poor. He protected their borders. He wasn't cruel to their neighbors. He was a very good and wise king. But at the height of his rule and reign, he used his power and his authority to get what he wanted. He saw another man's wife, and he slept with her. And in order to make her his own, he killed the husband. He had the husband killed. He commits adultery and murder. And what's interesting to me, what, what's insightful and humbling to me about Isaiah chapter 11 is that the best Israel had to offer wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. A man who was loved and loved the people, the best they had to offer with all the influence and sincerity and wisdom he possessed, in one moment he served himself instead of his country and he committed adultery and murder. You see, sometimes when we don't know our source, we go looking. And when we look into society, we're looking for leaders and politicians and organizations to bring the justice and mercy we long for and want to see in the world. I volunteer at a halfway house uh, for guys who are finishing their parole, their sentencing. And so uh, everyone, after they spent some time in jail, deserves... Um, to be in a kind of living situation that's not prison, and uh, you get rehabilitated. And so there's social workers, and there's um, psychologists, and there's volunteers, and I'm a chaplain. And all of us are there to be a part of their reintegration program. And I love spending time with these guys and hearing their story and trying to help them succeed under a system that sometimes feels a little unfair. Once these guys leave jail, they have lots of rules about what they can and cannot do. Sometimes those rules are major, sometimes they're minor. But if they break even one little rule, and it can be a small infraction, they go back in prison for a time decided by a judge, and they're sentencing, the, the, the timer stops. The time they have left owing stops because they broke a rule and they just stay in, sentence for, uh, uh, in prison for a year or two. And then they're let out again, and they get a list of rules. And the system says, don't break all those rules. Check all the boxes, and we'll let you go. The 
sincere guys that meet with me and want to change and the insincere that use me to look good, most of them end up going back to prison because it seems impossible to live the perfect life our system requires of them. I don't know how they do it. Avoiding prison one more time. The rules are so tough. You have to be so perfect as a former drug addict. You have to be so perfect to not break any rule. They live on the edge of justice and mercy every day. And if receiving justice and mercy is about being perfect, well, then we're all hooped. Because the guy at the top who has the power and the ability ends up serving himself. And the guy at the bottom who's been subjugated for years can't ever be good enough. Where's the mercy in that? Where's the justice for the dead wife? Where's the mercy for the drug addict? We have a wonderful system, and we live in a wonderful country, and it doesn't always deliver. So I'm asking you, what's your source? And if you turn to yourself, or you turn to politicians, or philosophers, or democracy, I think we have to admit we're disappointed. We do well, but we can't quite meet everyone's needs. And then sometimes it feels like we can never do enough. That even our best with the best intentions don't have enough power and authority to overcome the obstacles in front of justice and mercy. So who possesses enough selflessness and humility as a leader with power and authority to serve others and not themselves? But who likewise at the same time has enough power to overcome the barriers that people face? I haven't seen that in me, certainly not as a parent. I haven't seen that in society. And we have some of the best systems and leaders to offer this world. Canada does. And so what our friends have done today through baptism is they've admitted one thing. They're not the source of justice and mercy. They're not. They've looked at their lives and they said, I've been hurt and I have hurt others and I've gotten away with things I shouldn't have and, and I'm still owed some forgiveness and I can't deliver on that. And they're also admitting that they've looked outside of themselves at a broken world full of good people who work hard in broken systems and said, shoot, can't find it there. And so Israel was promised a king, and so are you and I. And like Israel was waiting for David, they were actually waiting for a man named Jesus. So as Christians, Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth, and he lived a life we should live, full of love, selflessly serving others. He died a death we deserve. He was committed, he was uh, uh, charged with crimes he didn't commit, and then he was executed for them. And the point he was trying to make is that if you want justice and mercy on this earth, it is not found in any one man or any one system, but in a God-man. And he went so far to make that point by building a religion, building a movement, and then killing off the leader. 
Who does that? Who speaks about kingdom and love and authority and performs miracles and serves the least and the lovely and confronts those who are in positions of power and then lets himself be executed? Because he's making the point that authority has to serve in love. Authority can't serve itself, but it has to be strong enough to make sure love wins. That's what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. And the people who watched him die were scattered. And there was many people who watched him die, and then many people who saw him alive after and had hope. And so what our friends have showed today through baptism is that when they go underwater... They participate, they, they say yes, that Christ's death was enough to satisfy the need for justice. And when they were washed clean by the water, they came out and said, by faith, I'm living a new life. Because Jesus lived that life. I can't live that perfectly as a parent. The guys at the halfway house can never meet all the rules that are expected of them. But Jesus did. He proved that point even to death. And then he rose again. And so our friends are living this new life of justice and mercy because they have a new source, because they have a trustworthy leader, because they have a hope. See, Israel was waiting for Jesus the first time. We're waiting for him to come again. We believe Jesus is going to come back and reign and rule on this earth in perfect love and perfect authority. And all the wrongs will be righted. And every tear will be acknowledged. And every hurt received will be tended to. And every pain will be vindicated. That's our hope. And so chapter 12 of Isaiah is this discussion of what it's like to be with this king when he's ruling the land and how we relate to one another. The lion lays with the lamb and that there's good relationships with the neighbors and that there's peace. And then... Uh, the Israelites are told to go out and make this God known. And so what our friends have been commissioned to do is not to leave the workplace, parenthood, volunteering, political systems, not to hide inside the doors of the church, but Jesus has commissioned them to go into the world and fight and volunteer and pray and believe for justice and mercy. Whether people believe in God or not, they deserve a taste of that. And to give them a hope that one day someone will return. Because honestly, I don't know what else to tell people. Democracy? We have a great country and great systems and great leaders. It's not enough. Who's your source? Is that source trustworthy? And can I invite you to consider a better source? Our friends have today... Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward allegiance, an inward change, a faith statement that Jesus Christ was enough and that he's worth following, that he is the son of God. Can I invite you to consider a better source of justice and mercy?